Adelaide spent years assessing risk for an insurance company, using her math background to save money and work out inefficiencies. But during COVID, she got the entrepreneurship bug and changed gears entirely. Now, a couple of years into building a spirits brand from scratch, she shares her story, why she made the leap to the alcohol industry, her passion behind the Brazilian drink of cachaça, and a few pointers on getting a company started from the ground up. Let's go. Welcome to Courage and Other Sea Words. I'm your host, Jen Root Martell, and thank you so much for joining me today. As I sit here, tucked away in a cabin in West Virginia, trying to immerse myself and my family in some nature therapy, I'm continually heartened by the outpouring of support for our cider from so many corners of the community in the Bay Area, guys. It's just unbelievable. I really haven't had the emotional bandwidth to post the news on my personal feeds, but through this podcast and our official South City Cider Works channels, the word is now officially out, and the last of the orders went out into the market last week, actually. Now all I have to do is a ton of paperwork, track down a bunch of kegs, and sell one more forklift. Let me know. Let me know if you want it. <laughs> Otherwise, not terribly bad, considering what we were staring at when we made the decision and got the news, so... I'm still rotating, I think, through all of the emotions of loss and closure and will keep working on myself through all of this, but I want to thank you all so much for the wonderful notes of not only personal encouragement, but just general support for the brand that we created. And just the other day, I had someone asking me if it was still on top of the tap room, which it is at the moment, if you're listening in real time in 2022, so they could go by and grab some. And for the rest of the month and on into October, I'm sure you will be able to see the kegs and cans around the bay, and they will be at 47 Hills until basically all the stock is gone. And I've so enjoyed the pictures that have been posted and sent to me of our cider out in nature at a partner's bar, restaurant, or even on the shelf. Thank you so much for reminding me just why we started this company in the first place why we focused so much energy on making just super approachable ciders that you can drink anytime, any day, anywhere. It feels good that so many people enjoyed them over the years. And I'm also excited that this podcast is now celebrating its second year on the air or whatever you call it for podcasts. This medium has been such an amazing gift for me to share my story, do a little therapeutic venting along the way, of course, And I'm excited for the more years to come because there are just so many people I have yet to talk to and so many more things to share. So from there, I'm continuing my interview series, showcasing some women inside and outside the industry who can bring their own story to the conversation, why they started a business, some tips and tricks to help other entrepreneurs, and how they've risen above the challenges of being women in their field. So without further ado... It is a pleasure to bring a member of the Spirits community to the podcast today. Adelaide is joining me as the founder of Cachaça Spirits in Miami, Florida. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. And I was inspired by your story so much because I feel like I can relate to it 
now that we've chatted for about two seconds as an intro on so many levels, but it <laughs> to, yeah, because you came to the alcohol focused industry from one that was totally different and made kind of a huge transition. And so I, I feel that very kindred spirit in that respect, because I, I did do the same a long time ago. And I feel like intense and really dramatic transitions in our lives. They just, I know sometimes they maybe take a pandemic or take like really intense circumstances, but just a ton of guts. And I feel also just this like trust in the process that, that things will, you know, this will work or things will work out. Okay. And change is a good thing. And I know that change, they do say like change is the only constant after all, but uh, I do, I do love that you have, have made this transition into the alcohol industry um, selfishly because you're adding now another wonderful alcohol to the spirits community, but just also <laughs> that it, another woman who is taking this on and kind of battling all of the challenges to, to build a new, build a new business when, uh, when you've kind of, your journey has taken you elsewhere, uh, which is exciting. So, so welcome. And I'm so excited to, to share your story with Thank you so much. And uh, you're absolutely right. I think one of the things I've been pleasantly surprised about the industry is, especially on the um, other women that I've met, uh, have been so wonderful and warm and welcoming and um, supportive. And there's like this really great kind of mutually supportiveness that I hadn't really experienced before um, getting into this craft spirits industry. So I'm very happy to be here chatting with you. Very cool. Thank you. I love it. That's great. That's it's great to hear kind of other women talk about that because uh, I feel like it it is an intimidating industry, but it does seem like us as women in general are are just super supportive and um, and there, which is cool. Just like very present to to be to be a support system for for those either entering or been there forever and all of that. So, and I guess I I do really like to start the the journey with the beginning, of course, uh, and sort of where you got started. We were just talking to you. You are actually from Cape Cod, which is wonderful. It's where my in-laws are from. So again, another <laughs> intersection here. And <laughs> so growing up in Cape Cod, where did you see kind of yourself going? What was your, what was your path? What was your interest, passion? So my mom is, uh, is now retired um, nurse. She was a nurse for 35 years. And uh, there's a lot of like medical stuff going on in my, uh, in my family, doctors and nurses and, and kind of in the healthcare world. Not that that was ever a draw for me. I was always, always, always a math kid from middle school, high school. I actually had one teacher who I really should go back and, and, remember her name, um, was the first one who like gave me the vote of confidence to what they called in my junior year of high school, they called like doubling up on math classes. So she basically said, recommended at the end of my sophomore year, you should take this one math course, but you should also take a second calculus, like, um, advanced placement calculus. And I wasn't going to do it until she was the one who said, I recommend that you do this. And that was what really kind of kickstarted me into this I got my bachelor's in math. I went to college to get my bachelor's in math. Um, and then it kind of 
naturally organically moved into the actuarial and, and stats risk management world. Not that I ever, I don't think anybody grows up wanting to go work in insurance, <laughs> but it was a really well-paying job and uh, low stress and really clear career path, which was nice. My parents, when I was little, always definitely steered me towards the stalwart careers. Mm. So when you're little, you want to be a ballerina or you really want to be a chef. And even to this day, I love to cook, but um, I definitely remember my mom telling me, you don't want to be a chef because the hours are terrible. The pay is terrible. Stick with it as a hobby. Stick with it as a passion. Don't make it a career. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. It's like a don't quit your day job situation. <laughs> Basically, which is fine. My husband really appreciates my, my culinary abilities. So at least I have one fan. Nice. Well, and you have an outlet, it sounds like. So at least you do have somebody that you can cook for besides yourself. Exactly. <laughs> get that get that out of the system on weekends and, and in the evenings. That's great. Actually, you're now making me remember when I went into college, I wanted to go to college for business okay. because I guess I always had this deep down. It's so funny that I'm sitting here now talking to you after starting my own business. Because I wanted, uh, I wanted to go to business school. I actually applied to a whole bunch of the really high uh, caliber business schools in Boston, and I was accepted. But my risk management mental side of my brain said, you know, go with a school that was going to be more affordable and where I could essentially um, have the cost of school covered, which is how I ended up at uh, University of Massachusetts Dartmouth. And I started in the business division, but then the classes weren't really rigorous enough for me, which no college student has ever said <laughs> ever, but it really, and then I, I like pivoted for a half a semester into civil engineering because I thought that that was going to be a good idea. That was a horrible idea. And then I finally just kind of boiled it down to pure math. I'm just going to get a bachelor's degree in math and work my way. Like, that's what I'm really good at. Um, and then there's so many practical applications for, for having a degree in, in pure math. And I actually ended up getting a, um, a secondary minor in Middle East history and counterterrorism. So I was like applying my like network analysis and combinatorics to studying terrorist networks. And that's what I, I thought I was going to go to like grad school oh, wow. and get a PhD and go work for the NSA. But I guess luckily I didn't get accepted to grad school in that, like in that way. And I ended up in Boston. This was right around the time where I think the society of actuaries, it was like doing a massive push to kind of bring awareness to the career Googling jobs, what can you do with a math degree when you have, you know, all this stuff um, that kept popping up. And so for anybody who's not familiar with with what an, being an actuary entails is you have to start taking exams. Basically, before you even can get a job, you have to pass these um, incredibly rigorous and time consuming exams. Went to grad school for actuarial science and then got into the largest health insurer in Massachusetts, which is Blue Cross Blue Shield. It was very much, it wasn't intentional the way I ended up in this career. It was, I think, a constant seeking of stability and um, a career that was going to be setting me up for a long career that was going to be lucrative and have a certain level of, of respect and, you know, kind of awareness to it. A lot of people are impressed even now when I tell them I used to be an actuary. But what I learned very quickly, um, maybe a year, year and a half in, was 
just the environment and like the the people that I was working with were not my cohort. <laughs> so you and I, you and I just kind of, uh, when we first jumped on the call, we were immediately like bouncing back and forth and bubbly and kind of just high energy. And actuaries, I kind of tell people like they're, they're not risk takers. And, and super risk averse. Yeah, that sounds super risk. Right. And, you know, they're, they're not going to be, they're not going to be the vivacious joke telling center of attention at, at a dinner party, which is fine. But I learned very much that that was a key part of my personality, that vivaciousness, that outgoingness that, and I, I, you know, I stared at spreadsheets all day and moved decimal points and would, I lost the meaning of my life when I was chasing hundreds of thousands of a percentage point movement. And my boss was like, why did this move a penny? And I just was like, I don't care. (laughs) I don't, because, and there's this like fake sense of urgency when I was at work too. Like, oh, granted there are deadlines and and things that need to get done because rates need to be published and the business needs to run. But, you know, it's not an emergency room where we need to like work to midnight to meet a deadline. It was just, but people were kind of treating it that way. And I'm like, I, I need some real excitement in my life. Not this like fake manufactured excitement. And that's not to say that my coworkers were lovely. The job was certainly, you know, it was, it was straightforward and it was right up my alley when it came to data analysis and everything like that. It just wasn't tickling that part of me that really wanted to, have a little bit more excitement and unpredictability almost in, in my life and feel a little bit more challenged and pushed outside my comfort zone. Of course. Yeah. That's interesting. I didn't, it's, it's almost like the, did you say actuary society? Uh, yep. Society of actuaries. It was the society of actuaries that that was, it happened like right at the right time. I just love that when sometimes things do line up, you're like, I'm looking for this and they were there exactly find a space that worked. So, but but you were there for for years in this role. But what kind of part of that job was was like really stimulating? One one particular story I like to tell is um, there there was certain and not to bore your listeners to tears with too much of the like like back back story of like how insurance works, how how health insurance works in Massachusetts. But there's a certain risk transfer. So let's just say some of the larger health insurers have uh, a riskier population, therefore their costs are higher. And so Massachusetts has a mechanism set up where pay in, we all pay into a pool and then the money kind of gets redistributed so that nobody can like strictly go after just 22 year olds who, you know, are, are, are just going to have no, no claims. What had happened, I think this is like the second year I was there, our risk payment that was supposed to come to us was dramatically lower than they were expecting, which was going to significantly impact the the business and the profitability. And so I was tasked with understanding why. And what the process was to dig through, I mean, uh, the data warehouse, the databases that they have available to them um, on claims data and everything is vast. What I was able to uncover were there was a certain level of, of miscoding. Basically, let's just say you have congestive heart failure, right? You go into the doctor, you have congestive heart failure, you go in for a checkup and the doctor, you know, makes a note of it and you kind of get or the risk 
score for that. You get assigned as a, as being a high risk because you've got congestive heart failure. Okay. And let's just say you go back in again, maybe six months later for a checkup and the doctor doesn't make a note of it. Therefore, the, cl- the you might lose that riskiness. And so what Blue Cross, what I found in the data was there were some clear diagnoses that weren't being captured year over year that really should have. Things like hemophilia, congestive heart failure, diabetes, uh, end-stage renal disease where your livers are kind of failing. So these are like, if you've been diagnosed with end-stage renal disease in one year, you should definitely have it in the next year. So these people were falling off. When I identified this, I identified $23 million that Blue Cross was owed in, in risk payments. And so that number actually ended up in a piece uh, for Boston Globe where they quoted the the chief actuary um, on this number. And I was like really proud of the fact that I was the one responsible for finding that number. So it was it was really like that was one of the most rewarding things. And I really enjoyed like the the uh, being out in the community stuff that Blue Cross is really kind of well known for. Uh, they do a day of service. I would love to go to like the food bank and fill, um, you know, fill meals and things like that. And what I realized was I needed something tangible. I needed to like be able to see something and see the end result of what I was doing rather than just I put a whole bunch of numbers on a spreadsheet. We figure out where that penny went. And then it gets sent off to the state and then the state publishes the rate and then somebody, you know, pays that premium. And it was like, I needed to feel a little bit more sense of ownership or sense of like satisfaction in totally. in the work that I was doing. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. But good on you. Well done. <laughs> Thank you. I didn't get a finder's fee, unfortunately. Oh, that is unfortunate. Yeah, I can't imagine Blue Cross would have. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Any of that away to anybody. Um, that's that's great. Yeah. I honestly, I did have to Google what an actuary was. So I am one of those people. No shame. Actually, no own. shame whatsoever. I had an idea. You- I see. I feel like I can use it. I could potentially use it in a sentence, but it's like, eh, just just before I talk to you, I should probably have a better idea. Well, the way I kind of describe it to people is accountants look backwards at the books and tell you what happened. Actuaries look forward and predict what's going to happen financially to the company. Oh, that is fantastic. That is fantastic. <laughs> uh, okay. So you found your $23 million and you were <laughs> in this role. You were in Boston. Do we say COVID happened? What uh, What kind of was the next step? Because then you made a huge transition to not only – Miami, but then also a new industry. So what? Why? What? <laughs> before before COVID happened, I, I left Blue Cross to go work for a couple of uh, startups in Boston, which was really fun. It certainly gave me the like rapid pace and high impact that I was looking for. I ended up working at uh, a, like a, a similar kind of data analysis company that would do healthcare data, uh, but it was a startup and they were, uh, you know, it was certainly a younger group and, and more fun and lively to work, uh, work in the office every day. But um, then COVID happened and we, my husband and I um, had always wanted to move to Miami, but he had his company in Boston. COVID just presented a great opportunity to while everybody was working at home, relocate and open up a second office down here in Miami. And then he gave everybody the option. There are, I think, 15 or 20 employees at the time and basically said, you know, the office in Boston will always be here. 
we're opening up a second office in Miami and anybody who wants to relocate is welcome to relocate. And within three months, everybody moved. Are you serious? Everyone moved everybody. to Florida? Everybody moved, uh, except for one uh, one woman who is older. Uh, she's in Boston for uh, for like health reasons and ma- managing her health because she's older. But everybody else moved. What? That is amazing. Yeah, yeah. that is amazing. Uh, and what it what it really did was kind of solidify the team, and everybody's really bonded because they shared that kind of. It's what the like the Navy SEALs do. You know, they put everybody together and strip them down of, you know, like all of their support system and then rebuild them stronger together. And so the team is like just the team dynamics from that move have been been really tight for for Ian's company. Um, But I continued to work for my Boston based company until January of 2021. And I just I wasn't getting the the level of satisfaction out of that job that I I had wanted, especially since everybody was remote. It really just going back to my, you know, I'm really just a social person. I, I thrive on being around people, even if it's just going to an office cube every day. That social connection is really something that drives me, and and so. I left that job. I didn't. I think actually, I when I quit, I wasn't expecting to quit that day, but I just had. I had like made an impulsive decision. So from there, I kind of took a deep breath and a step back, soaked in a little bit of like the energy and and exoticness of, of the things that Miami has to offer. Miami was picking up as a, as a tech hub and a lot of startups have moved here and, and, and grown out of the, out of the pandemic relocation of people coming down here. So I started like looking into the local startup VC world. Um, I was helping my husband with his company because it was growing rapidly at that point. And and then I was like just kind of poking around. Like I think a lot of entrepreneurs do just kind of open to any idea or business idea that could come to me. I just struck on this idea of starting a craft spirits company. Actually, that's not true. What I had what I had started doing was. Um, my husband's daughter was in college at the time, and she was talking about how she really likes beer and like craft spirits and everything. Like that. And we joked about starting a company called Basic Bitch Brewing. Nice. And this was before the ready to drink seltzer thing. Like there was, I think there was White Claw, but it wasn't really a thing yet. Yeah, and and it was great. it was like geared towards women, super fun, happy, bright colors, low calorie. And it just percolated in my brain of, and then I just started to think, and I don't know what your experience was getting into the the cider industry, but I was like, just, let's just break this down. I want liquid in a can. How do I do that? How do you make a product and how do you get it on the shelf? And I started digging into the three-tier system and discovered that a lot of distilleries will white label and private label for for other brands and other there's this whole world and open option for for starting a, a craft spirits or, or ready to drink line and and it just kind of like lit a fire underneath me to to want to learn more and and build the brand and do something and that's the kind of like the seed that started the whole germination of what is now my business <laughs> it's kind of wild so it wasn't it wasn't the product itself but it was, or it wasn't the cachaça specifically, but it was sort of the, the idea of creating something for someone to drink that they will enjoy. 
Yes. And the reason I settled on cachaça was I had enjoyed Caipirinhas here in Miami. I started doing some research into it because I think a lot of folks don't even know that it exists as a category, like um, uh, like like Soshu or something from from Asia. And I'm just the kind of person like the three tier system. I just want to learn about it. And so I started to learn that it's the third most popular spirit in the world. 99% stays in Brazil. It can be aged in hundreds of different types of native Brazilian hardwoods. And it has all this history. It predates Caribbean rum by 100 years. It has all this. And I'm like, this has so much rich history. Why isn't this more popular in the U.S.? This like we're the we're just we're kind of sleeping on this this great opportunity, this great spirit. What I then did because I'm a I was like an I'm an analytical person. Mm-hmm. I I wanted to understand why, and so I I bought every single bottle of cachaça I could find. How, like, how many How many did that end up being? Because I'm not a sure. Lot. <laughs> they were like. I'm not sure I know where I've ever seen one on the shelf. Granted, I'm not huge in the liquor section all the time, but I think I could find about like 12 to 15 different brands, different bottles. Um, most of them were silver or clear um, cachaça. And some of them I actually ordered from, you know, California and New York and had them shipped here. And But if you go to your local liquor store, Total Wine or anything like that, um, and you ask them if they have cachaça, if they do have it, usually they'll have one, maybe the max I've seen on a shelf is four different brands. They'll have like the token one. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, here's your one option. You're welcome. Exactly. Exactly. And and that was the other idea that I had. One, it's got such a rich, rich history. Why is it more popular? And then also, it's a wide open market. Mm. There are, and you start to see that what I after tasting and sampling and and reviewing all of these cachaças, what I realized was they only fell into two categories: cheap industrial gasoline nice. that the Brazilians love because it's what they've always drank, and it's like a it's kind of a joke, you know, like a do a shot of cachaça is like put hair on your chest kind of thing, sure, um, yeah. like the the horrible vodka you drink in college. Exactly. Or, or like, um, or like bad grappa. Sure. Or it was really expensive, you know, 40, $45 a bottle, um, beautifully smooth, but it had this like tangy funkiness to it. And the only way I can describe it is like, if you're, if you tried scotch for the first time and the first time you ever, the first scotch you ever tried was Laphroaig and you're just, and, and if, yeah. And you just go, oh, hmm, I don't like cachaça or I don't like scotch. It's like, no, you, you you just don't have an appreciation for that particular level of complexity yet. And so I identified this opportunity, this wide open middle ground of, of the market that really wasn't being served. Lower price point, higher quality, craft, handcrafted, but still with a smooth, more straightforward profile like what the Scots did with uh, Scotch whiskey. When they em- exported it to the U.S. market, they started blending it because the Americans weren't going to drink the really nuanced, um, heavy, peaty, smoky mm-hmm. Scotch. They needed a friendly entry point. But you have to start somewhere. You wouldn't start somebody on on a tequila journey with Miss Cal because sure. that might be a little bit of a, um, uh, too much of a, a, a big step for them to make. So I, I just kind of, I... It was like one little step and one little step and one little step. And then it was, 
eventually you've got this like momentum in the business that, okay, I guess we're doing this. <laughs> and, okay. and, and then it gets, you know, how do how do you get a bottle on a shelf? You have to find the glass, you have to find the stoppers, you have to find the liquid and it has to come from Brazil and you have to find a distributor, like all these pieces. And just, I'm, I'm very much a puzzle person. So I just wanted to put all those pieces together. So you are bringing the liquid, does it have to be made in Brazil or is it made here? Because you were talking about the Brazilian hardwood, which makes me think that it has to be barrel aged, which is a tremendous amount of space and energy and investment. Is that? Yeah. That's one of the interesting things that I also learned about cachaça. It's for the longest time, it was called Brazilian rum. And I do use the term Brazilian rum in my marketing because it's a, an easy reference point for people to understand what it is. But cachaça is different from Caribbean rum in that it is distilled from fresh sugarcane juice rather than molasses. And that gives it a, a fruitier, floral, more light flavor to it than even some of your white rums. And cachaça can come in all different varieties from the first distillation, white, unaged. It can be aged in stainless steel. It can be aged in uh, hundreds of different hardwoods. And so it really, it's kind of like tequila in that sense that it can come in a whole variety of colors and hues and flavor profiles. It does legally, in order to be cachaça, need to come from Brazil. Like the name champagne. Champagne can be only produced in Champagne, France. But but it's like every country that grows sugarcane has a version of this spirit where they take the fresh sugarcane juice and they ferment it and distill it. I think in, I don't remember, I think it's Colombia and it's called um, Aguadiente. And in Peru, you've got um, Pisco, which is slightly different, but every country that creates, that grows sugarcane has a spirit like this. It just happens that Brazil, being such a large country, has, it creates a lot of it. (laughs) That makes sense. (laughs) And a lot of people drinking it. It's a huge market. Yeah. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. I sent the listeners to this podcast through my journey of starting the company and sort of what it takes to, mm-hmm. to start and the nit, the nuts and bolts of all of those, the business plan and things like that. And the biggest thing for me was the market and your market share. And you've talked about that there's 12 or 15 different ones that you were able to find, though you did have to like really like scrounge and like source them from other parts of the country. Cabrinas then are just very big in Miami. Like is there actually, there is a market for something that is so unique in Miami, you found? It was definitely the fact that the Caprina or the Cachaca market is less saturated than, for example, the vodka or the tequila market. Right now, when I go into liquor stores, generally I am one brand of sometimes two or up to four different brands on the shelf. And if any craft spirits company can come to an investor and say, I'm 25% of the market, they will, I mean, their eyes will get huge. And so just the very fact that I'm only one of four bottles on the shelf means that it's a much better market. It's also very easy to tailor it to when we do our marketing. So you're looking for people who, like you say, you've kind of had Caprinas before, but you didn't know that they were made with cachaca or maybe didn't know a whole lot about the history of cachaca. 
Caprini's have market awareness, but not market understanding. And so people know what they are. And the other way I kind of describe them, if somebody's not familiar, I call it a more sophisticated uh, margarita. So yeah, nice. It's, it's really like when you've matured past spring break margaritas <laughs> on the beach and you want to go sit and have a nice cocktail, a caipirinha is a really great next, like the next evolution of the margarita. I also kind of personally feel, felt like when I was looking at the cocktails I wanted to drink, I was looking for more exotic flavors. I was looking for mezcals or interesting gins. I'm personally not a vodka drinker, though I know it's a very strong category. And so I was looking for a new drink. Um, You can only order so many spicy margaritas before you're like, is there something else more, more straightforward, less fussy? And a Caprina is a really beautiful example of that, where it's lime and sugar muddled together with ice and mixed in with cachaca. And it's like a simple, straightforward, beautiful way to just enjoy a cocktail. Um, and then it's really made unique by all of the different cachaças that are out there because they are all so different in their flavor profiles and, and who they're going to appeal to. Okay. Wonderful. And that the the cachaça then is really what defines that caparina. Yes. And if, if you did the exact same process with the lime and sugar, ice and vodka, it's actually called a caipiroska. So oh, people nice. will call... Yeah, and some people actually might be familiar with the caipirosca and not know that it's actually a derivative of a caipirinha. Caipirinha. So if your liquor needs to come from Brazil, how did you, I mean, I at least had the apples like <laughs> up the road in Washington and uh, knew how to ferment and just kind of went in that direction. But how did you even start looking for for a partner in Brazil or is? <laughs> the internet is an amazing thing. The internet, <laughs> and it also favors people who are willing to put themselves out there and really push for what they want. And what I mean when I say that is, part of, wanting to learn as much as I could about the industry. I bought this book called "Getting U.S. Market Ready" by Steve Ray, and he—it's really the book that um, that importers or people who want to export their product into the U.S. market who are unfamiliar with the nuances of the U.S. market. It's basically the Bible was his intent. And I read this cover to cover, sucked everything in, really tried to understand as much as I could. And so I was on Beverage Trade Network. I knew I wanted to buy it in bulk because I wanted to make sure that I could import it and bottle it here locally to maintain a lower total environmental impact, not having to ship heavy glass all the way from Brazil. And then also maintaining a certain level of quality control, given that I was trusting uh, a distillery in Brazil to to provide me a good quality product. I knew I wanted to import it in bulk. And so that kind of set me down the rabbit hole. And I actually, I was at a certain point, like negotiating to buy you learning all about like the volumes that liquid comes in like ibc totes are a thousand liters there are um things that go all the way up to like their tankers yeah liters versus gallons versus barrels and you're just like oh my god my brain yeah totally oh exactly and so I was actually like, at one point, I was looking into buying 26,000 26, liters because that was the volume that they were going to offer, which is a lot. That's a lot of liters. Yeah. So I, I had gotten to a point where I wanted to 
get some samples of, of this product. And I was, I was running into this problem where the, the person I was working with, who was actually based in the UK, was telling me I needed a COLA, Certificate of Label Approval, which I'm sure you're very familiar with. I told him, I don't have a label yet. We're, you know, this is still a new product. I just, I, you know, I just need, um, I need a cola waiver. He was telling me, no, 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 you need a cola, you need a cola. So this was spending up my spidey senses. Like, mm-hmm. there's something not right. So I actually went on LinkedIn, found the author of the book, and connected with him and sent him a note. I said, I have this very specific question that you don't address in your book about importing alcohol. I'm trying to get samples shipped in and I'm this guy's telling me I need a cola and I believe I need a cola waiver. And he bless him was so kind. He jumped on a call with me, spent like an hour, hour and a half kind of giving me the whole, you know, background and, and, and gave me a huge amount of valuable information. He also did yeah. everything he could possible to dissuade me from, from doing, starting the company because oh, no as I'm sure, I'm sure you know it's it's a very expensive endeavor to launch a, a a brand in the wine and spirits world from the branding and the marketing and you know uh, finding finding demand for your product and distribution it's it's you're you're never going to be profitable um, out out the gate and so um, he was trying to talk me out of it he gave me all the answers I basically told the guy not interested if you can't make this happen and so Steve on the call said. I can connect you with another Steve, Steve Lutman, who actually was the founder of LeBlanc, which is probably the most ubiquitous brand of cachaça in the U.S. It was sold to Bacardi in 2015. So he was kind enough to point me in the direction of my my now supplier in Brazil, um, who's a wonderful gentleman. I actually got to meet him for the first time. And I, I did all of this without ever visiting Brazil. Amazing. I met my distiller for the first time this summer. He's a lovely gentleman. It's him and his brother that have this distillery. They've had it for 50 years. It's two hours north of Rio in the Atlantic Rainforest. And they source their cachaça uh, from local distilleries. They grow some of their own sugarcane. And they're very fastidious about kind of the, uh, the approach to the distillation process that they use. Um, I just got lucky, basically. Yeah. I mean, sounded like the exact right person that you needed to talk to. <laughs> how did that happen? <laughs> I know that never happens. That's fantastic. And so how does it distinguish, how are you distinguishing it from this largest brand in the U.S.? Cachaca can contain up to six grams of sugar per liter. And so what a lot of the brands in Brazil do to make the product appear appealing to the U.S. consumer is they'll add sugar. And so LeBlanc, when you taste it, will definitely have a more saccharine, a heavier, sweeter profile to it. And that's because they add sugar. Got it. And so when I talk to a lot of bartenders, asking them about, you know, obviously you probably don't make a whole lot of caprinas, but when you do, what's the ratios? And then hand them my, a sample of my product. And we, the answer is always invariably that they dial way down on the sugar and and even back on the line because what you have is you're trying to allow the base spirit the opportunity to shine through rather than with um, LeBlanc you're just kind of trying to compensate and really find a a balance of the the overly sweetness so you, you add too much lime but then it needs still needs more sugar and so it ends up with this slightly unsatisfactory level of balance in the cocktail their cachaca is also industrial produced, which is um, when it's distilled in a column still continuously, which is very economical. But it also means that the 
quality of the ultimate end product is not handcrafted. It's not it's not going to have the same refined taste or texture like uh, a col- a copper pot still. Yeah. So you're able to bring to the market something that is r- truly unique in a in a very in a small niche that is already unique. <laughs> yes. And find a, a spot for it kind of amongst this spectrum of other flavors, which is so hard to do. Uh, and, and, and just, yeah, that's really wonderful. Um, congratulations. That's, that's great. And so you've been building your company for almost two years on this really great drink. I have to ask, the cachaca is spelled with a C, but yours is spelled with a K, which I'm sure was completely intentional. So how did you go about <laughs> branding and creating that like vision for, for what the company looked like in logo and, and all that? Absolutely. Your, your earlier point about creating a business plan, you really have to tightly define the market segment that you're going to go after. And there's one thing I knew that I didn't want to do, which was target Brazilians. I, I created the product for non-Brazilians to appreciate a Brazilian product but I wanted it to be marketed and marketable to non-Brazilians. And so because your non-Brazilian or your average American won't know cachaça with a C or cachaça with a K, mm-hmm. I then eliminated an extra step in my brand understanding and marketing effort because let's just say I named it like Bella, Bella Cachaça. Well, one, I have to distinguish my brand, Bella, from all of the other brands out there. And then I also have to educate you on what cachaça is mm-hmm. by just naming it intentionally cachaça with a K. We eliminate the, I don't need to position my brand name. It is synonymous with the product. That makes a lot of sense. And I love the K it's very like vibrant and looks like it has like a sun, like rays shooting out of it almost. Yeah, it was. So our whole branding identity was around one, it's authentic cachaça and everything about it is authentic Brazil and, and the authenticity that I try to bring to the brand. But it is also Americans perception of Brazil, because what I realized a lot of the brands do is they focus on that very organic, rainforesty heritage. And when Americans think of going on vacation in Brazil, they think of Rio. They think of Rio. They think of Carnival. They think of feathers and, you know, tons of people dancing. And so that was the imagery that we wanted to hit on carnival and and that energy. And so when we did the logo, I wanted it to have that that energy and that kind of vibrancy that you would get in those events, but not be literal feathers. Mm-hmm. And fortunately, the designer that came up with the logo for me, um, it was just like perfect because it gives you the the brightness and the and the lightness of Carnival without being like, here's a Samba girl. Right. Yeah. With all the feathers. That makes sense. Exactly. Lovely and very eye catching. And I love the colors. So the yeah, app, you've done a great job with the with the branding and the packaging and and everything. I, I look forward to, I need to now dig into this spirit that I didn't really know about. And that's, that's an exciting, this industry continues to, to inspire and motivate and, uh, and teach me things that I didn't know were around. So that's really great. I'm assuming you're the one knocking on doors doing this. hundred percent. I do. I run the business. I run the marketing. I make the sales. Sometimes I even do the deliveries. You know how it is when it's like, it's, yep. 
you just do it. And, and it's certainly, so I've, the product has been out in the market for about six months now, as I'm sure everybody is well aware, there were supply chain issues, finding a container and then finding a ship to pick up the product from Brazil to take it here was an event and something I had never done before, but I figured it out, getting it through customs and everything like that. But it, it is me. And so what I've really done, I've gotten, again, lucky with some of the relationships that I've been able to build here in Miami. What I really wanted to do was get involved and be empathetic towards the bartender community because there are a lot of mixologists and craft cocktail bars uh, here that are very influential and and really set the trends. And what I believe is that Kashasa is a very early trend that we'll see pick up over the next five years, um, especially as you see the tequila market really start to be saturated. Um, you'll see mezcal kind of bloom up and then people are going to be looking for something new and something exciting to to try next. And so I've really built some partnerships closely with with some of the um, very influential bars here in, in Miami. And it's really been just like I've gotten lucky with running into people and Mm. One thing my husband says to me um, all the time is, uh, no matter what, no matter who you think you're talking to or not talking to, always be, always do the right thing and always be a genuinely nice person. And it's worked in my favor where I didn't know who I was. Just I happened to start chatting with somebody, and it ended up being the bar manager for you know one of the biggest bars here in in Miami. And then I ended up I I'm working with another. Uh, another product down here, a software product that really supports the wine and spirits industry um, okay. and this people that sell. And that was another like, just you don't know who you're talking to. And I'm just trying like, offering, you know, what I what I would want as a product manager. I just said, you know, this is what I think. And they were like, well, do you want to <laughs> do you want to, um, you know, try out the product and here let me introduce you to this friend of mine who runs this bar and and it's really just a matter of building solid strong relationships that being said cold calling sucks yeah. <laughs> here's to that <laughs> so there have been a couple times and and you know we we touched on this a little bit about being a woman in this industry coming from healthcare insurance and and technology and software, I kind of poo-pooed the whole idea that like sexism existed uh, in the world of business. And then getting into the wine and spirits and, and restaurant industry, you're like, oh no, I'm actually like getting shafted right now because I'm a woman. That's okay. Sorry. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's, had, it's happened to me once or twice, like distinctly. I just, I'm like, okay. It was one time I was heading, a, sitting at a restaurant with my husband and I just asked to speak to the, the bar manager. So he came over and introduced himself to my husband. Oh my God. <laughs> like, no, actually I'm, I'm here to talk to you. Yeah, hi over here. So th- that's a great segue. Cause that, that is how I kind of like to spend the second half of the, of the podcast usually is. So, so when you were doing your risk management, you didn't actually find a lot of that issue with sexism? No. And I don't, I mean, just in my experience alone, and I can only speak to that on the white collar side of things, I generally don't see a whole lot of intergender kind of animosity. I don't, I never saw a male colleague treat a female colleague differently. I will, however, say, and I should have written this book five years ago, I have seen in that white collar business world, see women treat other women terribly. And it was very backstabby. 
especially from the women who were kind of in the management and the senior management roles who had fought their way there. There was definitely a lack of support for uh, for some of the younger women in the uh, in the in the business. That is that is really interesting that you say that because my sister in law was in some in a very similar field, and I heard a lot about female managers and how horrible they are. And that why can't we be supporting each other? And yet it, it is literally like a, I got here on my own and I'm going to hold on to this as much as humanly possible. And I'm going to beat off anyone who might try to get, take my job or whatever. It was, just like, it was like a feared, threatened place instead of like a, oh, like all ships rise, you know, together. Yeah. That being said, in yeah. the connections I've made in in the network down here in the wine and spirits industry yeah. are so supportive. Like it is like a girl power kind of thing. Um, and it's not a us against them girl, like men against women. It's just sure. a if you need help, by all means, call me. The same thing with the guy sitting next to me. If you need help, by all means, call me. It's been this really great kind of mutually supportive. Nobody's trying to nobody's trying to keep you down, which is awesome. Oh, I'm so glad. I'm so glad. It's like a little bit of both <laughs> that you've gotten into this. Well, and, and that's that's definitely so. Those are those are in the business. Then on like the in the bar manager side, bartender, bar manager, I see a little bit more of the sexism. Sure. Yeah, yeah. I feel like that that translates to experiences that we've had in California as well. That it's like, yeah, the the local cider women are all amazing, but the dive bar down the street would. Doesn't want to talk to you. Doesn't want to talk to you. Yeah, exactly. And that's actually what Steve Ray said to me. I, I talked to him again, like, uh, you know, nine months later, mostly to gloat over the fact that I had actually gotten my product going, <laughs> to, like, take a victory lap. But he said, you know, you've got two things working against you. One, you've got cachaça, which nobody wants. And two, you're a woman. So, and he was, like, basically straight up, like, not not trying to dissuade me in any way, but just being, like, you're going to encounter this. Yeah. And don't be, and don't be discouraged by it. I guess. Yeah. I I would say as long as you're coming at it from that perspective, it's like just so that you're aware that this is going to happen. Yeah. I think that that actually is very good advice (laughs) because it will most likely happen. Um, I hope you haven't had any like blatant issues. Just the one that just that one bar manager was really like, like, Oh, you're, you're just, yeah. And I mean, there were other, my my husband is really helpful when it comes to those kinds of things because he also points out, you know, you don't know what kind of day he's having. You don't know uh, anything else. So you just try and not be too, don't be too sensitive to it and don't let it ruin your day, basically, because they don't really decide your fate. So in the craft spirits world, you know, you're out there and you're kind of anybody tell you you're responsible for pushing your own product. You're responsible for the success of your own product. Nobody, no distributor. Yeah. No, no liquor store, no bar is going to sell it for you, or sell it as well as you. Uh, that's also something I'm learning very as I'm starting to bring on ancillary people to do tastings and things like that. Versus on like the the business side of things, in my previous career, you're kind of your success is dictated by your manager and your ability to navigate around them or the kind of work that you're you're being offered or going out and able to source. I like it's a little bit more of your choose your own fate. Yeah. Make your own destiny. Make your own destiny. I like that. And you do have so much control over all of that uh, for better or for worse. I also, I felt 
there were definitely days where it's like, it was very overwhelming (laughs) of like, if I'm not in the market, no one will be in the market for me. Yes. And I was up at 3 a.m. this morning, actually freaking out because I haven't gone out and done cold calls in like a month. And you're just like, and you feel like you're just sliding backwards because you know Mm -hmm. that if you're not out there selling it, then nobody is. Yeah. No, it's true. But I mean, that's, that's the burden that you, I mean, that's what you sign up for, I guess, unfortunately, but it's also, it's also great because then you can revel in your own victories because you knew they were completely yours. And it sounds like you've had so many, which is really wonderful. So even in six months, congratulations. The happiest day of my life, well, well, one of them was walking into a, a, a store and like walking over and touching a bottle on the shelf. That was a holy crap, I did it. Yeah. That was just base camp. Everest is still yet to climb. But, sure, sure, sure. But, but oh yeah. at but. least I made it that far. Yeah. And that first retailer, we still in my mind, that first person who like took a, took took a, a shot. A, yeah. And, and went ahead and said, sure, why not? And it wasn't, you know, like a massive big box. Like I think you're in Total Wine, which is wonderful. And they are amazing local partners. I love our Total Wine people. But but yeah, just to see it in like a small place, be like, wow, you had a lot of other options. Like that's really awesome. And I have to say, we I am closing the doors on on our cider journey right now. But seven and a half years, that never gets old. Yeah. <laughs> on a menu, seeing it on a shelf, like that will that will never walking get up old. and seeing it lit up on a back bar is pretty cool. Oh my god. Oh yeah, that's we, cool. That's because just yeah, spirits can do that. You don't really get that all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, we did our first. <laughs> Similar. It's like, oh, my tap handle's right there. So that's similar, I guess. But yeah, lit up on them. Yeah, yeah. Ooh, that's really exciting. Yeah. And then we we did an event here in Miami recently. Again, one of those like lucky breaks. I I made I made a connection with with one of the bars down here, and I said basically to her, I would just love to throw an event where it's a networking opportunity for me to meet some of the bartenders and just you know just kind of get a sense of what the, what, what the community is like. And so she brought in six of her friends to, and we did a bartending competition and there were prizes and Mm. the cocktails were amazing. And a lot of their, you know, their supporters and their friends came in and it was just a, a really just great community building, happy, energetic, you know, event. And it was, it was one of those, you kind of look around, you're like, oh my gosh, everybody's here because I brought them here or like Lexi brought them there, but they're all there because I created this product. Yeah. Yeah. It was my idea. Yeah. How thrilling. Yeah. And doing more stuff like that is pretty, is definitely on the plan. Yes. And as it should be. And honestly, that, that word of mouth will travel with those types of things. Absolutely. And that, that seems to be still, I mean, you can do all of the social media. It's that word of mouth because that's, that's going to be huge. And being out in the market, how, how much more satisfying is this now? Because you are, you're able to do what you left the the business to do. Is that just, that's just really satisfying? It's really satisfying. And also it's satisfying to see the growth. So I get to scratch that itch. I have to do the data analysis. And I don't think a lot of craft brands actually have a robust data analysis or acquisition, or they're not tracking their, their, um, you know, their performance and things like that as, as 
deeply as they could. And so I come from this world of, of data analysis. And, and so I'm really enjoying digging into our demographic data from our tastings and watching our, you know, our accounts, who's reordering, how frequently, building the excitement and the energy from there, and then using that insight to grow the brand. It's equal parts passion and kind of hard numbers, data-driven, both sides of like my personality come together perfectly. That's amazing. And I know for a fact that not a lot of people are doing that data analysis. <laughs> you do not have the background. So the whole fact that you have both of those elements is is going to be a huge for your success. Absolutely. I know I should have done more of that um, over the years for sure, just to just to work more efficiently, especially like out in the market and with sales and things. I think knowing yeah. you know who your top ten is and you know, you know generally how things are going. But, um, but yeah, having, having a little bit more of a thumb on the pulse of that is, I mean, that's so valuable. So, so critical to, to making sales happen and continuing them. So that's great. I'm glad you can use, you can use all of, all of the skills that have come together (laughs) and that starting a business, which you were thinking of doing. Yeah. Way long time ago. Uh, and the other thing I'm actually, so even that data analysis part of me is, is actually, so you mentioned social media, we have our Instagram and our other social media profiles that are, we post to regularly, but it's not my primary strategy. It's actually our email newsletter because I find that there's just a higher level of engagement and more, just a, a greater ability to build relationships and build connections within the brand with a, uh, a newsletter rather than trying to spend a lot of effort. And I, I think a lot of people appreciate how much effort goes into creating those social media profiles, or at least it is for me. You know, our, our newsletter has fun things like we do a playlist every month. We do a, usually a happy hour feature. And we've featured the bartenders that competed. And it's usually just like a little update on what new accounts we've opened, where you can find us. And way to keep people engaged a little bit more meaningfully than the social media. So that's that's another just thing that we're we're trying to do a little differently. It is amazing for those listening how much time a newsletter takes. (laughs) (laughs) Much energy. I remember I was doing sort of like a blog when I only was able to do it quarterly for a while. But yeah, so great on you for doing that monthly because I think that all of that information sounds like really, really interesting for kind of a constant flow of information of, from different areas of the market, different areas of the product, and sort of how you're engaging with with the community, which I think everyone loves to see. So that's, yeah. that's really great. That's a, that's a great tool. Is, what else would you say in just this short time have you found as like kind of a successful strategy or something that you did besides call up Steve <laughs> <laughs> helped you? One thing I was definitely surprised about, um, and I don't know why I thought it would be different, but the mix of my volume that comes from on-premise versus off. And I think I initially, before I started really getting out there into the market, I expected on-premise to be a larger part of my business. And I treated it that way. And so I really went out there and pounded the pavement and tried to open up a whole bunch of on-premise accounts. And I think I got up to like seven on-premise accounts. And then we got into our total wines. 
And then we got into another um, chain of, of liquor stores down here, Big Daddy's. And so the off-premise went from, you know, six locations to 25. And then Total Wine, you know, you re- reapply and, and hopefully get more more outlets as you prove that you can move the product through. And so, and then what I found is really hard is getting those reorders from the on-premise accounts. Sure. Somebody will buy a bottle, two bottles six bottles and then it'll be a month or two before they want to reorder and with the the retail outlets they'll buy three cases if I do a tasting for each tasting I can usually move between five and ten bottles and they're ordering cases every month and so I've really pivoted my energy towards growing the off-premise and then really dialing back the on-premise growth and only focusing on those super high impact events, event-driven on-premise accounts. Interesting. I mean, that makes sense because for you guys, a unit at a off-premise is a bottle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you only need six or 12, 12 customers, I guess, to go through a case. Whereas exactly. On-premise, it's, it's what is in a Kuiperina? Like three ounces? Two ounces. Yeah. And so it would take, I'm, I mean, the average, the average account, unless it's a Brazilian account, which I'm really, I'm not going that route, unless it's a Brazilian account, or we're doing a happy hour feature, and I'm pushing people to the venue, it'll take a month to go through the bottle. Yeah, so I guess the the sweet spot then would be getting on seasonal menus for cocktails, so that there's a Caprina on the seasonal yeah. menu, because then you know those are going to be going. Well, and and then it's all about the, you know, negotiation of can you give me, what can you give me to put you on the happy hour? And, you know, what kind of support is the nice way that they say it? What kind of support is the brand willing to provide? <laughs> oh, yeah. Too many, too many times have I heard that. And it's, <laughs> it is hard because you do, you want, you want to get into the spaces and you want to have your brand out there, but you you can't discount your product. Like you don't no. want undervalue. You can't undervalue your product. That's for other. I people. actually, I one of my biggest regrets from an, like the first two months of me getting out there and, and selling was one of the restaurants. He offered to put it on the on the happy hour for the summer and do like a passion for Caipirinha, um, but he wanted me to like discount twenty percent, and I wasn't at the point where I wanted to discount. And so I said, no, and I probably, like, I missed out on that volume, but then also I haven't sold a discounted bottle yet. And so mm-hmm. we're, we're, I think we're just about to top a hundred cases sold wow. with just me <laughs> in six months. So that's not a lot, but it's at least slowly growing. And I, and I, I want to stay away from having to like pay for placements as yep. much as I can. You absolutely need to. Yeah, absolutely. I totally, I can't agree more with that because it, it, well, it doesn't feel good. It doesn't look good. It's, nope. you know, I know it's, it's so, it's something you, you want to do with all of your soul, but, um, but no, you gotta, gotta stay strong. So that's, it's a hard market and it is hard because there's so many people who just come in. I've have so many, how many episodes, sorry guys, that I've like been bitching about this situation. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just like, it's the five cases for four or whatever. And you're just like, mm-hmm. no, no, I'm not. No. <laughs> yeah. The the closest I did. So when, when Big Daddy's asked me if they would, if I would do a volume discount, um, there's 55 cases in a pallet. And I said, I would give them a discount if they bought a pallet. 
nice. And I was like, yeah. And I immediately anchored that number with, I'm not giving you a discount on 10 cases. I will give you a discount on a pallet. <laughs> but that's also why the event-driven on-premise strategy works for me because they'll buy two cases, which is great. Generally, they'll go through a case during the event, maybe break into that second case. And then they do still have that second case to have on their bot on their shelf. We can do a follow-up event that's not as intensive. And then I have content for the newsletter and for our social media, which is great because the one thing that I think everybody struggles with is like finding enough content. So the more you do those events, and my goal right now is to just do one sponsored event on-premise each month because it's still just me, Um, whether it's a competition or a happy hour feature or something like that. So small, measurable goals. Tremendous amount of work, though, that goes into those. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's great. And you're not, you are, that's a manageable goal. It's a lot of work, but it's a manageable goal instead of like, I need something every week, which you'll just in 20 minutes and it'll be horrible. So, so that great. It does look like, it sounds like you are really coming at this in in such a logical way. So it's, it's no wonder it's it's succeeding already. Thank you. Congrats. Yeah. Are there any other tools or any other kind of advice for like the young female entrepreneur that that might be listening to be be fearless and reach out to ask questions um stupid questions they're you know not stupid questions just don't be afraid to put yourself out there and really and network like hell for the first year of your uh of your business because you will invariably crack something that will really lead to growth in your business. I've gotten lucky numerous times on just putting myself out there. And then I personally tend to be very passive in the way I sell. And I genuinely try and build authentic connections and authentic relationships with my accounts and the people I do business with. For example, one of the judges at the competition that we held is a market manager for 10 to 1 rum. He's a great guy. I think he was a little skeptical when he first met me you know, of like what I was looking for. And I just said, he goes, by the end of the event, he's like, just reach out if you have any questions, blah, blah, blah. I sent him a thank you note. But more importantly, I was reading industry news and I saw that 10 to 1 had just recently gotten a big injection of investment. I just sent him a quick note and said, hey, just saw the news about this. That's awesome. I'm sure you guys are going to crush it with, you know, all of that momentum. And like, he didn't reply to my thank you note, but he definitely replied to the, hey, congratulations. Mm-hmm. So celebrating other people's success and recognizing, letting people know that you're paying attention and that you're happy for them and that you're pulling for them does a whole lot. So if I need to go back to him with another bigger ask or a serious question or a favor, I think that that will have be a much better relationship to build on than just, hey, what can you do for me? Which is what a lot of folks in this industry do. Yeah, that is true. It is a, a lot of take, take, and not a whole lot mm-hmm. of good. And you, yeah, give a little and it's amazing how much you'll get in return. Mm-hmm. So so now almost two years in, I I would say no regrets. No regrets. <laughs> no regrets. I wish I, I wish I got a little bit more sleep, but mm-hmm. you know what? <laughs> it's really, it's so it makes me feel so proud to walk into a store and see it there. And every little bit of success is just huge. The other thing actually I would recommend, I did this when I first started was I made a list of like little benchmarks and little like 
milestones even. So our first hundred Instagram followers and you like, you write down the date that that happens. Our first retail position, like a retail place, write down the, our first score over 90 points, write down the date that that happens. You know, our first big distributor deal, which we're still waiting on when that happens, we'll write down the date that that closes. And so that you get to see, you know, Hey, the bottle was designed on this day and we finalized the logo on this day. And like, you get to go back and say, damn, like in six months, we went from nobody and no product to, you know, an Instagram account and a product on the shelf. It's like, you have to stop and like, actually appreciate all the work that you put into it occasionally. Absolutely. And pinch yourself and celebrate those small victories. Absolutely. Each of those was a tremendous amount of work. That's true. Exactly. And it's easy to discount the meaningfulness of each of those little things. So, I mean, I, I'm, I'm very, I don't like social media, if you can't tell. Um, (laughs) But like the fact that, and we don't have a huge following. I think we're like edging on 200 followers. But the fact that 200, oh, the other thing was I mentioned, I I set a goal of the first time somebody who I didn't necessarily, like wasn't my friend or my personal friend who followed the account out of nowhere and found the brand and thought the brand was worth following. I was like, write that date down. (laughs) Like you like me. There's like something here worth people paying attention to. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, you like the product without knowing who me. I am. I haven't, yeah, been part of that judgment. I call. haven't been like, please follow my product yeah, on Instagram. <laughs> I haven't just been like hanging out with you at a bar, being like, drink this. I promise it's good. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. So I guess to to wrap this up, the most important question would be is now that we've talked about this amazing beverage that you are distributing, what, where do we get it? How can we get it? Where, do we get it from you? Or do you have to be in Miami? Like what's, what's the you deal? Can, you can find it uh, available for sale in the wild in South Florida. We're really, this also goes back to my marketing strategy. I'm like super focused on just South Florida when it comes to like actually going out into the, into the field. But we do ship to 40 states. And if you live in one of those 10 not fun states, reach out, let me know, and we will definitely work towards making sure that it's available. Just want to know where we're wanted. Yeah. So you go to kachasaspirits.com, K-A-C-H-A-C-A spirits.com, and you can buy it now and have it shipped to your door. Sounds great. And if you happen to find yourself in South Florida, go get a caipirinha. Go get a (laughs) caipirinha. And and cheers. So, well, this this has been really wonderful. Thank you so much, Adley, for your time and energy. I love the passion. There's just so much. There's so much behind you, and I haven't even been able to see you. We were so concerned about the that I haven't even. But it doesn't matter because it comes through in your voice oh, so much. I'm and, so sorry because I can see you. I just I the the connection was so terrible with the video running. So I felt I wanted to make sure that we had the the good back and forth rather than the, the the constant stopping and starting with the bad connection. But it it's been such a pleasure. I love your energy as well. I love that. I always love meeting other women who are in this industry and have the same kind of passion and kind of appreciation. And it's, it's so wonderful when you talk to somebody who kind of really understands what you're going through. Yeah, for <laughs> so. sure. It just sounds like you're on the up and up and just going to keep going. So I can't wait to see the next, the next stage uh, of bringing this really exciting Brazilian spirit to the to the U.S. and and just raising awareness. It's I literally think that's what most of our job is. Honestly, especially I felt cider. Half of it was seventy five percent of it was education of just mm-hmm. 
is worth drinking. So just shut up and do it. (laughs) (laughs) Shut up and do it. (laughs) So anyway, thank you so so much for your time. And um, I look forward to chatting with you another day. And that's a wrap. Thank you to Tony Stuck for the awesome intro outro music and to Marianne King for the amazing pod art that you see on every episode. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review to help out this podcast. Five stars goes a long, long way, and I so appreciate the support. I know it says write a review, and that can be daunting, but apparently Apple isn't asking for a novel. A simple, hey, what's up? Cider is awesome. That would be more than fine. And for more information about me and this podcast, visit us online at otherseawords.com. Talk to you soon. And thanks so much for joining me today.